0: Hello again, welcome back to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracing. In this series, we pick the brains of some fascinating doctors who forge their own paths in and alongside medicine. We hear their perspectives, experiences, some of the lessons they've learned along the way as they share their advice that they have for doctors looking to diversify or switch direction in their own careers. This is our second episode for 2021. My guest in this one is Dr. Lucy Cooper. Lucy is the clinic GP at the Primary Health Care Clinic in St Vincent de Paul Society's Matthew Talbot Hostel in Willamaloo, Sydney, where she's been based for the last 20 years. And I should probably note that more recently, um, CCO and founder, uh, Dr Amandeep Hansra, has been offering her own services at the Matthew Talbot Hostel as well, which is how we got in touch with Lucy. I'm really grateful to Lucy for sharing her time and story with this podcast, because as she explained to me in the lead up to this chat, Recording interviews and public speaking generally is not something that comes very easily for her but listening to her speak about her journey through medicine and her search to find her place both professionally and personally after initially feeling a little out of place um, and how she effectively discovered a way to combine her personal values, her interests, her faith um, which is a big part of her life and a desire to really help people into all all of that into a, a really rewarding career. Hearing that story was something I found quite powerful and inspiring. Lucy's quite open and reflective in this chat, and I thank her for finding the courage to tell her story. As well as talking about her work with the homeless, including the mountain of work she and her colleagues had to undertake last year to provide effective care for their patients during the COVID 19 outbreak, uh, which included things like securing hotel accommodation and and much more. She also talks about the research projects she's been involved with and identifying ways to improve not only access to care for those living homeless but how to improve the overall model of care for some of the most vulnerable in our communities. As she told me after our chat, um, I quote her, her commitment to to research side of her work is due to the need to inform the best ways to reach disadvantaged populations and to improve their health burden of disease. And... You'll hear her speak about some of the huge differences she and her colleagues have been able to make in areas like the treatment of hepatitis c which has been really fascinating and, and, and made a huge difference so without more further ado i'll stop rabbiting on and you can listen to and hopefully enjoy my interview with dr lucy cooper Dr. Lucy Cooper, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew, and thanks for having me, uh, having me on.
0: No worries at all. So for those, I want to start, for those um, who might be unfamiliar with you, your work, um, before we get into the discussion about um, your journey uh, through medicine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What are the roles you currently have and what an average week or even perhaps a busy week uh, might look like for you?
1: Well, I've just hit uh, 60 years of age, so uh, there's been a big year for me. Um, so I, uh, my week is uh, very much involved with uh, family and looking after older parents and parents-in-law and also uh, my first grandchild. Um, I meet up with friends a lot. I enjoy exercising and we uh, uh, do a lot of walking with my husband. And my work, uh, I work part-time at uh, Matthew Talbot Hostel in Sydney, looking after homeless men. And whilst I only work there two sessions a week, i am kind of got my head in the game pretty much all week. So the nurses who run the clinic there will contact me with uh, any concerns or issues about patients or results or advice or whatever. So I kind of am available all the time, but you know, managed to fit the rest of my life in around work very easily, or perhaps it's the other way around work <laughs> in around
0: life. So what was the story? I want to, I'm interested in your story because in leading up to this interview, we had a couple of discussions around your journey, which I think is a really interesting one. Like a lot of the people um, that I've spoken to um, in this um, series previously, um, it took a while for you to, to perhaps find your place um, uh, in, in medicine before we get to that, I was wondering sort of where it sort of all started for you. What was your original decision um, to pursue medical career? Was it was it always the dream growing up, or was it was there someone a role model perhaps in your family who who sort of um, uh, been an inspiration for you? And what was your how, how did it sort of begin for you?
1: I think it was probably um, my parents were both kind of in the health field. So dad was a dentist and mum a physio, right. and my uncle was a a, a radiologist so there was kind of health discussion and I always mm. was quite good uh, at school so I you know enjoyed study and enjoyed doing well in study um, and then I had thought that I'd probably do physiotherapy
2: right.
1: uh, but then I you know got good marks at school so uh, the headmistress in fact suggested I apply for medicine which uh, which I did
0: and So <clears throat> How how did that go? Because uh, I think um, I'm I'm not. I hope I'm right in saying, it, but you, you took some time for you once you did sort of had completed your your medical studies for, to to find um, the, the the right place for you in in, in the medical spe- scheme of things. Where did, wh- did you enjoy your your time at university and studying, or did you did you find that sort of early on that that maybe you you were in, a, in an odd sort of a path for you?
1: No, not at all. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved all about medicine, um, loved the study, loved everything. probably could have identified early on. I really loved the brain, so I loved neurology. I found psychiatry really interesting. Uh, I loved diagnosis. Um, So, yeah, everything about it I I really enjoyed. Um, I was a a hard worker. I studied a lot um, and, and did well. Um, And then in in intern and resident years, uh, I enjoyed that, uh, but probably couldn't put my finger on what I actually wanted to do. And most of my friends at uni were the sort of high achieving ones. So everyone was going off doing, you know, surgery or cardiology or endocrinology or anesthetics or whatever. And I kind of looked around and thought, oh, okay, what will I do? So I had a bit of a chat and decide that, okay, I'll do radiology. Right. So um, I got a job at one of the big teaching hospitals in radiology, which was great. And then within six weeks, I thought, this is not great. <laughs> so I uh, I quit, which went down like uh, a ton of bricks with the, uh, the hospital, that fair enough.
2: imagine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the most popular person then. <laughs> um, but look, at that stage... Um, my fiance then was studying to do uh, orthopedic surgery, and I just thought I actually just want to relax and enjoy myself and have a good time and not be trying so hard, I suppose, uh, all the time. So at that time, you could just fall into general practice, and that's that's what happened to me. So I, I you know needed a job, so I did some locum work, um, and that was that was okay, and it was pretty much enjoying life outside work and enjoying earning a bit of money. And Frank and I, with my husband, you know, we skied a lot and we windsurfed a lot and we had a great time and Frank could sort of study on the beach and I could just enjoy the beach actually. Sounds so <laughs> it,
0: <laughs> was,
1: it was pretty good.
0: <laughs> so where, where did you sort of find yourself? How long did that sort of last before you sort of decided that you needed to, to find a bit more direction
1: uh, well we then we had children so by this stage Frank was well into his um, into his training and I was doing part-time general practice we you know we bought a home and I was working in various general practices close to home and they're all mm-hmm. great general practices um, I was working part-time looking after kids as well where was where was um, home at
0: this stage Whereabouts that were you based? was in
1: Balgala Balgala Heights in Sydney. Right. So I went to a great practice in Manly, another fabulous practice uh, with a friend in Alamby Heights. They were all really good, but I have to say, I just didn't feel that I fit. There was nothing wrong with the practice or the work. It was me. I I just didn't feel that I fit somehow. So after our second child, I thought, right, perhaps I'll do some study again. So... uh, I spoke to another friend uh, from from the hospital and he said, good why don't you enrol and do a, a Master of Medicine? So I did that um, and I did that by research and thesis uh, at North Shore Hospital and uh, ran a trial uh, which was great fun, really enjoyed that, loved, loved everything about that and got to the end of that uh, study period and got uh, my Master of Medicine and then thought, right, what will I do now? And, you know, there the opportunities to do obstetrics and gynaecology, to do psychiatry, lots of people helping me. But again, I just couldn't work out where I sit. Mm. Uh, so I didn't take up any of those opportunities. Um, and at that stage our kids were at the local Catholic primary school and we attended the local parish and I met Uh, the pastoral associate up there who became a very good friend. Mm. And she said, look, why don't you just go and do something completely else? And I thought, that's true. Medicine's probably not for me. And, you know, it's been great, but uh, it's it's not for me. So uh, I looked around to do some voluntary work just to see what I actually did like and where I did fit. Mm. So that was when I uh, sort of, where do you volunteer? So Matthew Talbot Hostel, i would actually visited there once as a student. Um, so I rang there and got an appointment with the um, volunteer coordinator, Brother Jerry sure. and rocked up to see him and he uh, listened to my story and I was ready and saying yes, I, I would like to serve meals in the dining room. Um, And he listened to me and he said, well, actually, why don't you just quickly come down to the clinic first because that's where I'd like you to start. So (laughs) pretty much straight away, I was straight back into medicine again, which wasn't my plan. But uh, yeah, Um, so I worked there as a volunteer and met uh, Professor Ian Webster, who had set the clinic up with one of the nurses there as a nurse-led clinic. And he'd been there for 25 years, um, but uh, needed some assistance. So that's that's
0: where I landed how did, how, did you, how did it feel I mean you sort of you sort of it's easy to make light of there that you sort of dragged back into this field that you were trying to, to sort of work your way out of did did it um, did it feel like you were sort of um, being pushed back into something you, you were trying to get away from or did did it immediately yeah. sort of, or, did you, or was it or was it sort of a faster sort of because um, obviously you know it, it led to a position you know a point where, where you you now find obviously I it quite rewarding, but what what was that initially like, how did it feel?
1: Yeah, I did sort of think, bugger. (laughs) What's this I want to serve meals in the dining room? Um, Yeah, no, I just, but of course, you go there to serve. So I thought, oh, well, all right, I'll I'll do this. Um, And it was pretty overwhelming to begin with, uh, Andrew. It was, uh, there was a, you know, the patients are are so complex. such serious physical and mental illness. There was advanced alcoholic liver disease with people with ascites and and really serious mental illness. Um, So I found it uh, quite overwhelming, um, this sort of sea of need. Um, And Ian was there to help me, but of course he he had other work to do. So I was often there just on my own thinking, you know, how do I treat this person, this it was just too much. What can I do? And I remember a couple of at that stage I was I was volunteering, so I didn't bill or anything like that. I mm. said to um, I went somebody needed a, a home visit, and I was in a car with a young woman who had in fact just left um, her training as a nun, and I was venting to her and just saying I don't know what I'm doing. This is just too hard. You know, band aid medicine. I feel like. I'm trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. um, So, and she just sort of listened to me for a while and then then I stopped venting and she said to me, uh, Lucy isn't helping one person enough. And that sort of made me realise that's true. That's what you do. That's what I'm comfortable with. And I can't, you know, I'm not saving anybody. It's uh, just serving the personal in that moment um, in the way that's necessary and being available to that individual person so little by little you know with people giving wise uh, sort of insights to me helped support, I left at one stage feeling burnt out and was back until one of the nurses rang me with a result from a patient that wasn't mine and he said to me Listen, you want to come back to work again? And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> so we've been, you know, having been off for like a month, he's uh, he's dragged me back to work. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. But um, it's it's really I feel completely at home there, Andrew, as the years have gone by and I've learnt what to enjoy there, learnt not to Uh, probably learnt to get over myself a little bit uh, and just uh, serve other people. Um, Yeah, I've found that I'm more sort of authentically myself. I feel I fit in and I really enjoy the people, enjoy the nurses, enjoy the men. Um, You meet wonderful, wonderful characters, loud, lovely joyful funny people and then in the next breath you know it's there's a lot of suffering and complication and damaged people and terrible stories that you hear yeah. um but it's overall it's um it's very rewarding work it's um i'm very grateful to be with people i think it, with their sort of unfiltered self so it's Raw, people are raw, there's no pretense. Um, yeah, and that's it's a very uh, special way to be with a person when they're at their absolute lowest, I guess.
0: It's been something like 20 years now that you've been working with the the, the Talbot, Matthew Talbot Hostel through St. Vincent and DePaul Society. What I you know, you've just outlined some, you know, some of the good and the bad, and there's a lot of quite harrowing stories, as you said, that, that you you're seeing. How what do, what, is, what do you do in terms of, um, looking after yourself? Because obviously, you know, um, self care is, is quite important, um, especially with, um, I would I would think, um, in in a role like yours that you're in. What how do you, what does that sort of mean to you, and what's your sort of approach to that?
1: Um, Well, as I say, early on, Andrew, I probably didn't understand how to do the work without it draining the life out of me. Mm. Um, It's a lot to take
0: on all the time, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, and I think it was probably in myself a little bit, and I mean, it's natural, particularly when you're younger, that kind of savior complex. I'm helping these people, I'm saving these people, that sort of stuff. And then when you can't and it's too much, it wears you down.
2: Yeah.
1: so I think probably over the years with wisdom and various, I don't know, little comments that people make and greater understanding in life and probably greater understanding of myself, I can see that it's not, it's not about me, it's about the team of people around us that that do the work and nurses do most of the work. The nurses that I work with have been there as long or longer than I have. Um, so there's a great longevity there. Um, so, it's a shared care. It's a very happy place to work, which seems kind of uh, an odd thing to say, but it was a lot of humour and, and uh, joking, but also a lot of uh, compassion and non judgmental attitude. Um, I probably couldn't physically work there more than, more than the two sessions a week. Um, so, even though I'm kind of on call all the time, but nurses are very careful not to kind of ring unless they really need me but um so i yeah definitely friends and family and um exercise which i've always loved skiing going to the beach that sort of stuff um so my life feels very balanced and yeah integrated
0: sorry into that 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 aspect of balance obviously you've been involved in a number excuse me You've been involved in a number of, of studies um, into this field now, um, in um, homeless um, health. Uh, whether it's you know everything from access to psychi- uh, psychiatric services and the need for for that prevalence of things like metabolic disease um, to you know problem problem gambling and addiction. What, um, is that something that um, obviously goes back to your you know you you said how much you'd enjoyed doing um, the research part of your um, um, your your training before you sort of when you got out of general practice is that was is that sort of to try and sort of scratch that itch or is it to, to try and inform what you're doing or is it just what's what are you getting out of that
1: um probably yeah to to um to scratch that itch a little bit i um there are a lot of people that work and access uh, matt talbot so um Professor Olav Nielsen is a machine when it comes to, to uh, research. He loves it. He's a psychiatrist that visits. We have two visiting psychiatrists. So Olav has uh, has uh, done a lot of research and I uh, tack along with him. Um, also, we we have a lot to do with, um, you know, Greg Dorr, who uh, is the, the sort of um, big boss about uh, accessing direct acting antivirals for the whole of Australia to treat hepatitis C, mm. and one of his studies at the Kirby Institute approached us, um, trying to investigate how do we how do we reach these really difficult to reach people yeah. so that they can access um, access treatment. So um, we did a study with them, um, looking at um, testing. Um, People for hepatitis C and, and instituting uh, treatment. Um, so yeah, I, I must admit I get tacked on with most of it, Andrew. But um, it's 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 good to be able to get the uh, the, the uh, research that you need to inform care to see what works. Because definitely with marginalised people, you know, they don't fit into the general mainstream system. So it's Good And over the sort of 20-odd years I've been there, we've worked out our own systems about what works. When I when I first started, if, you know, I needed to refer somebody to um, an infectious diseases specialist. They, you'd make the referral and that'd be nice and that wouldn't turn up. Or yep. I'd start prescribing a, medic- a medicine and they'd take half the course and that was the end of it. Yep. Um, so we've worked out mechanisms, the nurses and myself, of what works for us and our population. And now I think we really do... Actually, achieve quite good outcomes. Um, Alan Chudley, who's a work the nurse I work really closely with, has set up a metabolic clinic. So we follow with blood tests and so forth. Everybody who's on um, an antipsychotic medication, so we can, you know, keep abreast of weight and blood pressure and cholesterol and so forth and treat people. We have a bit outreach diabetes clinic that um, the hospital comes down to us uh, every six weeks, so we can closely manage our diabetic patients. Alan also runs a hepatitis C um, treatment clinic, which we haven't got as many patients with Hep C now, thank goodness. But mm. you know, so that we can make sure they get their medicines every single day, um, and all of those, you know, it's kind of hand to hand type medicine. We I hand the um, patient to Alan, and Alan hands the patient to somebody else who takes them to their appointment, and hands them back, mm. rather than relying on the system, yeah. um, which generally isn't able to be negotiated it's pretty complicated trying to
0: get to hospital and back yeah and i'm sure it's it, as you're saying before it, it becomes tricky in terms of being able to you know have have patients go through an entire um uh treatment phase for, for whatever it might be and get that continuity that um uh what's the word i'm looking for but you you, you know what i mean the adherence yeah i do sure. i guess um is that's, that's the word i was trying to think of um so uh, it is. A co- I mean, uh, you, what you're describing is, that, you know, as, as you say, is a completely different model of care with a completely different, you know, and a unique range of needs. Um, have you what what have you? What's changed in in the 20 years have been you know, you've been doing this? What yeah. What are the biggest changes that you've seen? Has have things improved? Because obviously, you know, a lot of the studies that you, you know you, you mentioned the work with hepatitis C, um, and I want to ask you in a, in a moment as well around. Um, obviously COVID um, last year and, and the the measures that you and your colleagues had to, to put into place um, to help um, those vulnerable patients of yours to be able to to get tested and, and isolate and, and and some of the you know the various arrangements that were made in that particular instance but what are the what are the, speaking more generally what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the last 20 years has it gotten better has it gotten worse or is it pretty much the same
1: uh, I think it's It's changed a lot. And when I first um, sort of took over in inverted commas from Anne Webster, who's a public health physician, um, Anne worked there for 25 years as a volunteer, and I took over as a volunteer. Uh, And then after a couple of years, I thought, no, I can commit myself to this work. I'm enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And so we started with... It's a nurse-led clinic, but we started um, trying to make it more of a general practice. So um, Ray Sadler, who he, he, um, sadly has died now, yep. but he has arranged for us to uh, get access free to best practice. So Ray helped us computerize the practice. Um, we then were able to um, set up preventive uh, care models with um, Alan Chumby, who I mentioned before, and Julie Smith, setting up smoking cessation clinics, metabolic clinics, hepatitis C clinics, so that we could do a lot of in-house uh, preventive care. Um, so I think rather than just uh, somebody coming in with a disaster and sitting in the hospital or patching them up, we're now able to probably more in a general practice sense, holistically look after the patient and we have a lot more continuity of care um so it's it's quite satisfying i think for the nurses and um and for myself uh looking after people it, it doesn't feel so band-aid anymore mm.
0: yeah, just you know modern technology sort of help as well um in terms of you know even even when people are living rough and, and, and homeless that a lot of times um they're still able to to through you know whether it's social media or whatever it might be or with tele- you know, mobile phones. Does that make things slightly easier than it might have been 20 years ago? Uh,
1: Probably not actually, Andrew. (laughs) Everyone's got a mobile phone, but they don't answer them. So (laughs) there's still the the problem of um, getting in contact with people. So it is that hand-to-hand. So if we want to – so we work very closely with the caseworkers at the hostel who – uh, there's um, St Vincent's homeless health team and Kirsten Road Centre, who are nearby. They they also will see um, injecting drug users and sex workers and homeless people. Mm. Uh, the medically supervised injection, injecting injecting centre. So it's more the sort of hand to hand, word of mouth, person to person, rather than technology assisting us. Mm. To be honest, mm. um, it's still pretty old school.
0: Do you get back to, to what we were talking about a moment ago? You eventually, as as you said, you got to a, a place where you you know you you found you know you said you were really enjoying the work and you wanted to, to you know for, for you had gone from the, from that initial um, role as a volunteer to 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 the work you're doing now. What did that feel like when you when you? Because I think we we've spoken previously about the idea that you know this was uh, from what I understand. And, and forgive me if I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it sounded like a a real sort of um, uh, matching up of all of you know, your your personal values, um, interests, um, your faith, and 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 also just generally what where your, what you wanted to be doing all came to to, to converge into to to make it what you wanted to be doing finally and, and helped you find your place. Can you talk me through what that that felt like when you when you sort of realised that, that that was that was all sort of coming into um into alignment?
1: Yeah, it's um. I think in my personal life, I have always been one to be searching, searching, searching for the truth um, and what the truth is for me. And it's probably, I can say without getting too religious on you, Andrew, but (laughs) it's probably been a, like, I think really a yearning for God. Um, It's an internal search for what makes sense to me and. Um, not so much who am I, but what, why, why am I here? What is my role? Um, and various things have happened probably through medicine as much as any in my life. When I was in, I think, third year, we had, we had to do a you know a case study and my, the person I was following, Pam Gilmore, had breast cancer. She was a 40-year-old woman with four children and she died uh, while I was doing my case study, which affected me very much. I was about 21 at the time, and I became interested in death and near-death experiences, and that just left me thinking, you know, what is it? (laughs) There Hmm. there just seemed to be this whole, I wished I could jump across to um, some sort of knowing and faith and so forth, but there was this big chasm that I couldn't cross. I couldn't just believe in something that... uh, I didn't know to be true. So I think probably for many, many years, of this, this searching um, and yeah, gradually with the looking, I suppose, um, you know, God found me, I guess. Um, and I, uh, once I, I had a greater understanding of myself, I then, um, could perhaps integrate my spiritual self and my physical self and my intellectual self, uh, and that that took a long time. Mm. Um, and eventually, uh, I came to that space, and I realised when I was working with uh, poor and vulnerable, damaged people, um, that was where I felt most at home. Um, I could bring my whole self to work and I didn't feel divided at all, I suppose. Uh, and still I'd feel that. Yeah, I really like like the people. Um, I like the nurses that I work with. I enjoy the men's company um, and it feels like it's real life to me. Um, it's, I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but it, it really is a, a great privilege to be with people when they're at their most difficult time in their life.
0: Just on that, because obviously you know, last year um, just added a, a whole another complex um, element to to the lives of these people who are, as you say, quite vulnerable. And um, What was that like? I, I touched on it earlier and that obviously you and your colleagues had a lot of work to do um, during COVID last year. Can you sort of talk me through what that meant for you guys in your setting um, and what you had to to do to, to try and look after your patients.
1: Yeah, that was, that was pretty amazing time for everybody, I think. Um, we had, uh, my husband and I and some friends had just come back from a ski trip actually in Switzerland. And fortunately we got back on the 14th of March for my nephew's wedding. But as we were leaving, I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, This I'm so glad we're going because, <clears throat> you know, the, the border with Italy at the top of the mountain at the mat was this great big metal fence. You couldn't go into Italy, and there was a lot of talk and fear uh, around COVID. Yeah. When we were flying home, the airports were empty, people wow. were coughing, and there was this, this sense of, you know, the plague around. And we landed in Sydney and felt so grateful to be home um, but people didn't realise how bad it was uh, over in Europe. Um, so when, when I stage, got back... and I, is
0: this? This is um, early in... Early this is the
1: 14th of March. Right, okay. 14th of March we flew in. Yep. Um, so that was pre-Ruby Princess. Yep. But when I landed, I thought, oh, you know, the hostel, we've got 100 men um, sleeping in the hostel. We've got probably more than 400 sharing the dining room, bathrooms, laundry facilities if it gets into our population, how do we isolate people? How do we, how do we manage this? It's, um, you know, potential disaster. So, uh, we, I spoke with Julie who's the, the nurse leader and we decided we have to try and quickly, um, socially distance the hostel as best we could, uh, which, you know, Good on the hostel management. It was really hard work, uh, trying to separate everything, putting in hand sanitizers everywhere, putting, trying to keep people apart, having shifts for meals, uh, giving meals because it was safer to eat outside rather than inside, right. um, and then also thinking how who do we contact to see how we can decant the hostel. Um, so it was a matter of you know ringing. Anybody that I knew who knew somebody, um, I wrote an email to the premiers department. And to their credit, they, some official rang me back and assured me that, um, you know, that the uh, government was looking at um, harnessing hotel rooms. Um, and in fact, that's what happened. So our, our um, men were all put into uh, into hotel rooms. Not we ended up we went down to about ten people living in the hostel from. Mm-hmm from uh, over 100, Uh, but it was a very – it was a time where you felt quite isolated, um, just trying to make up what I thought was sensible um, and and, uh, instituting massive and expensive changes to the hostel and to people's lives um, just to try and achieve a sense of safety. Um, So, yeah, it was was amazing uh, and worth it because – yeah, we we certainly, uh, everybody stayed safe and uh, and uh, we still, the, the hostels still have been, or well, they're slowly, slowly accepting uh, clients back in now. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't think I answered that very well. No, no,
0: I, I thought it was... <laughs> <I think it's laughs> that a was bit. a ramble? Well, no, not at all. I mean, it, it must have been quite a, it sounds quite a hectic sort of a time. I mean, as you say, it was, um, everyone um, was sort of learning um, a lot so much as as things were going along at that stage of the um, of the pandemic well i
1: had i came back with a sense of panic from europe mm. thinking i have to do something and i did feel like i was sort of shouting into the wind um jumping up and down saying we you know quickly we have to change all this yeah um and over here it was still a little,
0: a a little laissez-faire
1: time and so, forth. so mm. Um, I'm not saying that I did anything in particular. No, but, but I, I my, guess, yeah. I, guess
0: I, get the, I get the point you're making, though, which is, yeah, obviously having seen firsthand what happens when it does get out of control, um, the way it did, certainly more um, so in Europe than, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, obviously we had um, cases you know, here in Australia and there, there were there were outbreaks, and the, but we're nothing like what we've seen um, in, in various other parts of the world. So having seen that firsthand, I'm sure you, you know the the urgency was would have been quite quite real for you.
1: Yeah. And we had also, you know, workers in the hostel that, you know, take sheets of beds that do the laundry. So mm. PPE was short. So we had to make decisions. Do we make well I had said look, everybody needs to wear a P two mask. Those those workers we didn't have many P two masks, but those ones needed to have P two masks. What you know, how do we manage the nurses? Mm. Um uh, but yeah, everybody Everybody kind of uh, swung together, and uh, it felt too slow to me. But we definitely got everybody out and safe, and everybody on board um, with the changes.
0: Do you have any concerns? Uh, do you have any concerns about what that means you now? Obviously, with with um, things starting to creep back, you know, very slowly towards um, what I guess we used to consider normal. Do you have any concerns as to to what lies ahead for? You know whether it's um, your patients or for, for the homeless in general, and given you now that, that um, things are sort of going. Well, back.
1: I, yeah, no, I we're being very cautious in uh, and our institution at um, St Vincent de Paul probably more cautious than others in slowly, slowly getting people back in again. Mm. Um, and I think as the vaccine rolls out, um, that will you know. Be, uh, be a wonderful thing and um, protect people at least from um, death and serious illness from COVID. Um, so we're involved with um, other homeless health uh, uh, services like um, St Vincent's Hospital Homeless Health and Kirkland Road Centre that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So we're all working together to, to try and work out how do we reach our um clients so that they can get not just the first vaccine but the second one as well which will be the trick Yeah, uh, because often people are quite mobile and um, difficult to contact.
0: As we were saying before, yeah.
1: Yeah, so lots of um, ideas coming forth like care packages for people when they get either one or two or perhaps vouchers and to encourage people to come back um, for, their, for their second vaccine and um, you know, we're expecting people to feel, you know, historically it sounds like people have been feeling a little bit unwell after a vaccine, so making sure they have a place where they can lie down and rest, um, get some Panadol, uh, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but it, uh, we, we start vaccinating um, in week three, um, so we're looking forward to actually getting that going and um, vaccinating our, our patients.
0: yeah. Okay. doubt I wanted to you know we're sort of getting to the end of of your time, um, because I know you've got things to do. I wanted to ask, (coughs) we've spoken a bit about a lot about your journey and finding your your place in medicine. I wonder what advice you might have for other doctors out there, whether they're younger or older at at various stages of their careers, because obviously this is is something that sort of hit you you or affected you at at various stages um, of, of your own career. Um, do you have any advice for, for those who might be feeling a little lost or misplaced, or that feel that um, they haven't quite um, found the right place for themselves within within medicine yet?
1: Yeah, I guess um, from my experience, it was um, I was lucky that I was well supported by others, but um, I had t- just taking the time to to kind of listen to yourself and and uh, think about think about whether you're happy in what you're doing because I think in medicine there are just so many opportunities in different directions and you don't have to follow the mainstream you know you don't have to force yourself as a square peg into a round hole Mm. Um, and for me it was having the freedom and the opportunity to just (laughs) took a long time but slowly slowly work out uh what made sense to me and where I felt complete, um, where I felt authentic, authentically myself, I suppose. And once I found that place, it's been wonderful. It's uh, it's, it's definitely worth worth the journey and the thinking and the um, I suppose um, suffering as well. In one sense, you you know you have to give things away and um, let go of things that you thought you were once going to be mm. um, and listen to your heart and, um, yeah, find it, it's certainly worth it. So I suppose listening listening would be my um, my advice.
0: Both to yourself and to those around you, I think based on what you've been saying in the conversation.
1: I guess so. I think a lot of... Um, the people that try you know there are a lot of people out there who try to help me and they're fantastic people but of course all directing me into you know psychiatry or obstetrics or whatever and I Mm. I don't think I could have come to this career place looking back earlier I could say oh yes this makes sense because I have always loved the brain neurology, psychiatry but then I've also really loved physical medicine I really love diagnosis I like complexity uh, and greyness um, so yes I understand how medically this sort of medicine suits me completely but nobody else I don't think would have been able to go A boost you go and do yeah. homeless health that'll really suit you to the ground because <laughs> it doesn't really exist <laughs> um, so it was yeah I, I didn't Other people gave me quite a a lot of really helpful and um, well-intentioned advice, but it kept not sitting with me. So I had to keep thinking, um, you know, "Mm, that doesn't quite fit. So it probably was for me listening to my heart and probably just random people would say things. And I would think, gosh, that's true. That makes sense. Perhaps like that that young mum saying, um, you know, isn't helping one person enough. Um, so just to let go of that i'm going to make a difference um, i'm you know i'm going to really help people and all this that sort of thing um, yeah
0: how about in terms Sorry. of um for, for, for any doctors that might want to be getting uh, might want to try and help um, in areas uh, like like you have been in, in, with, with homeless health are there other are opportunities there are, are you are, are organizations like yours on the lookout for people or how, how would how would people be able to get involved to, to be able to help
1: I think it, the opportunities are certainly coming, Andrew. It took, it you know, I kind of randomly uh, landed where I landed, um, but I was on the lookout for somebody to come and help me for the last 10 years. And now, you know, Amandeep's found us and another, another doctor also has, has found us. Um, I know that there is another uh, NGO who's, Planning to start up a homeless clinic in the Haymarket area, so I think there's a recognition that specialised um, medical services for homeless people um, is worth it. Uh, so uh, I, w- I guess I'd uh, suggest contacting uh, non-government government organisations uh, to see whether what sort you of know a, what they're... they might have available. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Huge, huge thank you to Dr. Lucy Cooper for sharing her time once again and her story with the CCLM podcast. Just a reminder that to find out more about the Creative Careers in Medicine network, the resources, upcoming events, the membership program, just head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. We've got more interviews and episodes coming up soon. So please stay tuned and spread the word.